The longest flight I've ever been on is from Vancouver to Beijing. That's a 12-hour flight. I've done it four times, and every single time, I hate it. The flight itself is fine, the staff are great, everyone's good, but I can't sleep on flights, and I try still every time. I'll take drowsy medication, it doesn't work, and so I'm just sitting there, half doped up, just can't focus on anything. I sit there, I stare at the ceiling, I watch other people's movies, it's not a fun time. But the longest flight, nonstop, that's commercially available in the world is actually from Singapore to New York, and that is a 19-hour flight. To put that in perspective, in those 19 hours, you could watch all nine of the Fast and Furious movies. Thank you, Lord. You could watch all nine of them, or if that's not your taste, you could watch all six Mission Impossible movies and Top Gun 1 and Top Gun 2 and Jerry Maguire, and you would still have a couple hours to stretch your legs, to sleep, eat, do whatever you want. Question for you. If the pilots that were taking off in Singapore were a couple degrees off target of New York, you know, if they were two degrees off, two degrees a little bit too far south, do you think they would still end up at the final destination after those 19 hours? No way, they would not end up in New York. You'd end up somewhere in Brazil. You'd get off looking for the Statue of Liberty. Someone catches you in an ankle lock. You're doing some jujitsu on the ground. You would not be anywhere near your final destination, even if you were a tiny bit off at the start. Same with if you're hanging pictures or putting up shelves, I'm doing renovations, I'm learning all this. If you hang up the one side and it's off a little bit like this, at the end of the shelf, it ends up looking like this. The gap gets magnified over time. The same is true with one of life's greatest adventures and biggest journeys, that of marriage. Many marriages begin their divorce even before the wedding day. They're already headed for divorce. If the bride and the groom are holding views that put them a little bit off, just a couple degrees off of the final destination. And that's if they know what the final destination is. Even if you know what the final destination is, but you don't have the means to get there, it doesn't even matter if you're pointed in the right direction if you can't get there in the first place. Even being a couple degrees at the off can lead to destruction in the end. Here's an example. Um, if a bride and groom are heading into marriage thinking that um, you know, marriage is forever, sure, yes, but also, you know, it's kind of disposable, like friendships or like a car or like clothes, and I can change them out as they suit me if it gets boring or dry or inconvenient or something better else comes along. Or perhaps if they're soon into their marriage and they're assuming that my spouse's primary job is to make me happy, and if I'm not feeling happy, then it's always their fault. Some of these false views can come in and put us a little bit off target. And I would contend to you this day that we are very lost when it comes to marriage, as a culture, as a people, as a human race at this time in history. The current divorce rate in Canada, it's kind of on par with a lot of the developed world, is 38%. That's the most recent data I was available to find. But 38% of all marriages will end in divorce. 38% of people that said they were gonna be married forever are not married forever, and amongst Christians, that number is, it's actually smaller. Amongst conservative Protestants, kind of our pocket of evangelicalism, the divorce rate is 25%. 25% compared to 
38%. Getting married in your 20s, divorced and remarried in your 30s is very common with my generation. I know lots of people going through that right now. I actually know someone that just signed a million dollar book deal with a major publisher to write about being divorced in your 30s. So needless to say, marriage is complicated. About 40% of people that step into it don't remain into it forever. I think that we need to know God's destination for marriage. We need to know what God intends for it. He's the one that invented it. He's the one that made us and made us to be in this and the process by which we can arrive. So today we're gonna to try and answer these two questions. First, what is the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? And secondly, how do I achieve it? So I would invite with you to turn with me to the book of Proverbs as we try to find out God's meaning for marriage today. The book of Proverbs, it's part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. That's just a genre of books within the Bible that are dedicated to explaining, hey, what does wise living look like? And it gives general principles that are generally true. So Proverbs, they're kind of Twitter length, they're small. And it says things like, you know, if you honor the Lord and love your parents and work hard and are wise with your money and hold your tongue, your life will go well. And that's generally true. There are exceptions to these, of course, and there are whole books of the Bible that actually deal with these exceptions, things like Job and Ecclesiastes. But today we're studying to figure out, okay, what is the wisdom of human relationships and marriage itself? And ultimately, we're going to see marriage as a metaphor for Trinity the Trinity, we're gonna see marriage as a metaphor for ethics, how we ought to live, and we're gonna see marriage as a metaphor for eschatology, for what is to come. Marriage shows us who we are, how we ought to be, and who we will become. Now, before we get into this, I, I want to acknowledge that this topic, this area can be very sensitive and very sore for many of us for different reasons. If you're not married and you long to be married, then just learning about God's great design for marriage can, can kind of just be like rubbing salt in a wound. Or if you're in a marriage that's difficult and hearing about God's great purposes for it can also make us a little bit uncomfortable. Or if you've lost a spouse, or perhaps you grew up in a home with broken relationships, if you grew up in a home with a broken marriage, this can, this can press on wounds of ours in our heart. And I want to say from the outset that the purpose of this is not to shame you. God does not shame you. We as a church do not shame you. But as we're going through this and God is revealing to us areas where we need healing, let us come to him with our brokenness and our pain as a canvas for him to do his great redeeming work. And that as we learn the places in our hearts that God still needs to heal us, let's bring ourselves underneath the waterfall of his grace and let him wash over us with his mercy. This is not for our shame. This is for our good and God's glory. So let's get into it. The first place that we will begin is seeing marriage as a metaphor for Trinity, the Trinity itself. And this seems like a very strange place to start. But consider the fact that the Christian faith makes a very bold claim that the God of the universe that we worship, who created all things and sustains all things, is triune. He's three persons 
and one being, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct divine persons of the Godhead all make up God himself. Three persons, one being. That's confusing for us because most of us are one person and one being. If you think you're not, seek help. Yet, from all eternity, God has existed in this trinity, this matrix, this network of love, where all of the members are pouring out themselves upon one another, glorifying one another, lifting up, admonishing, and edifying the other members of the being. That's how we can say that God is love. You can't be a loving person if there's no object for you to love in the first place. So God is love and has been loving for all of eternity in perfect unity with himself. And from this overflow of the perfection of the unity and love within the Trinity, from this overflow comes creation itself. God delights in creating other beings that are able to partake and share in the love that is his nature. He creates us, he creates the world, and he creates man specifically in his image. This is Genesis 1.26, I'm sure you're familiar. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God makes us to partake in the delight and joy and love that he has. It's interesting, after God makes all these things, he makes day and night, he separates all these things, he makes all the species, he said, this is good, this is good, this is good. Then he sees Adam chilling on his own. And in Genesis 2.18, this is the first thing that God recognizes as not good. He says, hey, it is not good for man to be alone. And he makes Eve, he makes woman. And Adam, as soon as he sees this, it, it spurs up praise in him. He starts saying, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He goes, whoa. Some translations say, mamma mia. That's also perfectly fine if your Bible says that. <laughs> and together, Adam and Eve are to act as bearers of God's image on earth. He says, go and have dominion over all the world. Go make the world look like what this garden is. And garden... Um, the word paradise means paradisia. It means a walled garden. And in this place, we had perfect fellowship with God, sharing in the overflow of his love. And God says, all right, go bring this to all the world. This is part of the priestly function of believers. If you remember on Good Friday, we had that 45 degree function where to reflect God into the world in this way. So we're to go around to the world. And just as the outward facing love of the members of the Trinity gives rise to the life of creation itself. So he makes humanity to be outward facing, pouring out our love onto one another. And this gives rise to new life. We use that language of procreation. From this comes the family. And from the outward facing love of the family comes the life of a culture, comes the life of a country, comes the life of the world. At the most basic level of reality itself, woven into the fabric of the cosmos, we see the life-giving nature of love and also the death-giving nature of hate. Life brings love, death brings hate. Hatred leads to war, leads to murder, leads to suffering, leads to destruction. Woven into the fabric of reality itself, we see the life-giving nature of love. Consider Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12, also good wisdom literature. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, 
One will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? That's my wife's life verse. Cold feet all the time. God help me. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. I like that pivot. The language of two, 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 and then threefold cord. Now stick with me here. This is where we're going to make the pivot from Trinity to marriage. It's coming. Stick with me. If we exist as an overflow of God's love in the Trinity, and our task here on earth is to show God's love and delight in it, his glory, his supremacy, his sufficiency, his majesty, his power, okay, then the purpose of my life as a human and the purpose of my marriage is to show this in how I love my spouse. I'm supposed to see this in all facets of life. This is kind of the series as a whole, whether in your friendships, whether in your singleness, whether in your marriage, whether in your parenting, whether you're an accountant or a baker or a shoemaker or a grandma or a grandpa or an uncle or an honorary aunt or uncle. This is the purpose of life itself. This is the thesis for how I love my friends. This is the thesis for how I love my spouse. This is the thesis for how I live my life and all my relationships. If I'm single as a Pringle or if I'm locked up, this is the purpose of the human life. This is the purpose of being human. This is where we're going to focus today. What does this grand purpose of life, sharing in God's love and sharing it with the world, look like in my marriage as a whole? We're studying one instance of our life as humans in the book of Proverbs. So let's look at a few Proverbs. Book of Proverbs speaks very highly of the good thing that marriage is. Some of the Proverbs are kind of from a father talking to a son, so it's kind of a, a lot of a male perspective on this, but we can, we can focus on the fellas after, okay? He's talking about wives right now. Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Fellas, say amen. Proverbs 19.14. Houses and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Ladies, you say, that's right. In Proverbs 31.10, a wife of noble character, who can find? She is far more precious than rubies. Everyone say, mm-hmm, that's what I'm talking about. So far, we've been looking at this metaphor of marriage as trinity. Marriage shows us who we are, what's our nature of being human and being together in this way. It reveals the underlying fabric of life itself. I am to emulate the selfless nature of the Trinity, rich in desire and passion, serving each other in perfect unity. I'm to be like God. My marriage is to reflect God in his nature, in his love. It's a place to discover the truth about being like God, being God-made, and also, in, in this proximity, in this relationship, though, it will begin to reveal the parts of my heart where I'm not like God. That's kind of the, the paradox of all this, that this relationship shows us who we are and also kind of who we are not. And the Proverbs, when you study this, it begins, it begins to touch on it. Let's keep reading. Proverbs 12.4. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but she who causes shame is like decay in his bones. Ooh, 
So now we're starting to see the other side of the coin, right? We're starting to see why 40% of marriages might fail. Good marriages are good and bad marriages are bad. You can quote me on that. Just hold that thought though. Hold that and let's, let's start in the first half of the proverb here, okay? If you think about a crown for a moment, obviously it's a symbol of royalty. Solomon is writing this, came from a Jewish culture. He was a Jewish man. When a king wears a crown, it's the most important thing about his whole attire. This passage was written by Solomon. And in the Jewish culture, the crown was not only a symbol of kingly power, obviously, but also one of joy and gladness. And some commentators, when studying this, this passage, this proverb would say that what Solomon seems to be intending about his language here of a wife of noble character, that term noble, it just refers to a woman who has all of the perfections of womanhood. You look at Proverbs 31, this whole chapter talking about the godly woman and a wife of noble character is a crown on her husband's head, which is beautiful, but immediately it reveals to us, okay, but who, who can be like this? Who could expect this of their wife, a wife with all the perfections of womanhood? And let alone, why, why would she marry you? That's a side point, I'm sorry. But a wife with all these perfections is a delight, it's a joy, it's a crowning feature of her husband. But guess what? We aren't perfect. Our husbands are not perfect. Our wives are not perfect. And this relationship of marriage reveals this in and of itself. Marriage is revelatory. And it's interesting to see in the book of Isaiah that God steps into this, this language of marriage, this metaphor for relationships. And he shows how he will make his church to be a crown of beauty. And we're gonna see later in Ephesians 4 that Paul says, guess what? The way that Christ interacts with his church is also how husbands are to interact with their wives. I'm getting ahead of myself. Consider the following, Isaiah 62, verses one to three. This is all kind of, these puzzle pieces are gonna to come together. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name and the mouth of the Lord, that the mouth of the Lord will give. Here we come. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So how can a wife be the perfection of womanhood? We see that God will make her perfect, that she is perfect in Christ. So the plot has began to thicken here. We see the good thing that it is to be with others. The matrix of the Trinity, the matrix of love that a husband and wife share is an echo of the nature of God himself that we are to model. But it's this very relationship which so often reveals to us that we are not the paradigm of virtue that we thought we were. Before marriage, I thought I was a catch. I thought I was a great guy. Anyone would be lucky to be with me. It turns out I'm a selfish narcissist who doesn't like to clean up after himself. It's the very relationship of marriage that has pointed out to me who God wants me to be and who I'm currently not at the moment. In his excellent book, The Meaning of Marriage, Timothy Keller, he puts it like this. Marriage doesn't so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse, as it brings you into confrontation with yourself. And, and yet, and yet, in this very moment, 
God's gentle voice comes in, reminding us that he loves us enough to take us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. And this too will be modeled in our interactions between husbands and wives. And so this, this, uh, this wraps up our first metaphor of Trinity and it, begin, it brings us to the second part of marriage as a metaphor for ethics. Marriage is one of the ultimate training grounds for becoming the people that God wants us to be. As we've seen, it's not only revelatory of our nature, but it's also the training ground, it's the context for the fullness of God's goodness being woven into ourselves. We are to be good together the way that God is good to us. And ethics, sorry, let me define that, it's the study of how we ought to be. What is the good life? What is the nature of reality? What is the nature of truth? And how do we align ourselves with it? And marriage is a crucial matrix where we experience and refine how we are to live ethically. It's, it's in the womb of this relationship that God intends for us to craft our character to be more like his own. Let me quote Timothy Keller one more time. Last time, I promise, in this sermon. What keeps your marriage going throughout the years is your commitment to your spouse's holiness. You are committed to his or her beauty. You are committed to their greatness and perfection. You're committed to her passion for the things of God. That's your job as a spouse. Anything less than that, any smaller goal, and you are just pretending to be married. Now consider the Proverbs, how they put it like this. Proverbs 16, seven to eight. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. So notice that, that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. It's peace with God. It's an overflow of our vertical relationship within which we find peace for our horizontal relationships. This is what we celebrate and proclaim and practice whenever we pass the peace to one another on Sundays, that we have this peace with God. And from this, we will find peace with one another. So here's, here's an interesting truth that comes from this that I think will challenge us at first, but it's ultimately for our joy. Let me put it this way. Marriage is firstly about your holiness, not your happiness. Listen to that closely. Marriage is firstly about your holiness and not about your happiness. Now stick with me. Don't, don't, don't turn off the TV just yet. If marriage is meant to make me holy, it's meant to make me set apart, it's meant to make me more like Jesus in this way, then it, it is of no surprise if my spouse says or does things that I don't always like or that don't always maximize my immediate short-term happiness. Either they may be revealing the sin in my life, which is uncomfortable, that can offend me, that can wound me, that can get me all hot and bothered, or perhaps some of their sin is showing and it's challenging me to respond in grace and not in sin in this way. And you know what, guess what? Most conflicts contain a bit of both. It's usually not one or the other. Happiness is on the far side of holiness in this way. Nothing will make you more joyful, 
more content, more happy than living in the way that God would have us live. He made the world, he made us, and he says in his law, which he gives in his word, that guess what? This is how you're supposed to interact with me. This is how you're supposed to interact with yourself. This is how you're supposed to interact with all the world around us. And that leads to flourishing and that leads to life. Francis Chan, I'm gonna paraphrase him. He says this in his, he's got a marriage book called You and Me Forever. And he says that, our marriage problems usually aren't marriage problems, they're God problems. Our marriage problems usually aren't marriage problems, they're God problems that come out in our relationship. Does that make sense? If I lack intimacy with God, I'm gonna try and fill that space with the most fragile and shallow and insufficient idols and replacements. Or perhaps, worst of all, I could put that burden on my spouse. I could lack intimacy with God and expect my spouse to do things for me that she could never do. I'm gonna put a God-sized burden on her finite, imperfect shoulders, and she will always seem to be a disappointment because I'm putting something on her that she was never meant to do in the first place, and that's not fair. And when our spouse can't do it, we're gonna turn to other things to fill the gap or to numb ourselves in this way what we see here is that uh, in the Proverbs that we just saw is that you seek the Father and peace and joy and the good life will be the byproduct. If you're seeking happiness for its own sake, marriage is a bad deal. Someone's gonna be all up in your business all the time. They're gonna be aware of all your, your foibles, your faults, your shortcomings, and you know, you got a lot less independence. Someone's watching, you know, what are you spending your money on? What are you doing with your time? If you're trying to maximize your short-term happiness, you know, marriage doesn't look that appealing. Maybe that's why our, our culture's got, in some ways, a pessimistic view of it. Because happiness is so cheap. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. Your happiness can be taken from you in one phone call, one snarky email from a colleague. One person cuts you off, someone at the grocery store gives you a weird look while your kid is throwing a tantrum. Your happiness is gone. Your spouse is stressed and takes it out on you or, you know, there's just a barrage of nagging criticism. Your husband is emotionally unavailable. He's got, you know, the, the listening skills of a two-year-old in this way. <laughs> but to, to kind of conclude this point, to put a bow on it, we'll see this. Worship God, not marriage. Don't make an idol of your marriage. Your idol, oh, pardon me, your marriage is to be something from which the overflow of God's love spills into, and as we use it as a place for him to refine us and bring us into greater communion with himself. And this will come out in all kinds of ways. We don't have time to get into a lot of nitty gritty. This is the value of good marriage resources and books. But for example, how do we speak to one another? If I'm trying to refine someone and lovingly point out areas where God needs to do some growing and some work, I can do it in a way that blames and shames or in a way that builds. Bad talk blames and shames. Good talk builds. But also sometimes that's in how we speak, but also in, in how we listen. Kind of a, a light bulb moment. Uh, we've been seeing a, a, a Christian counselor for years, even before we were married. And uh, uh, without saying too much, my wife would come to me and say, you never want to just sit and cuddle on the couch. You never want to do this. You never do this with me. You never want to. And Kate, to be fair, in some degree, you know, until like two years ago, 
there's never been a situation in my life where I was asked to sit and cuddle and listen to people. I grew up in a house of four boys. I'm a pretty like caveman, red meat kind of dude. She's not wrong, but in the moment, you know, I pull out my, my fencing sword, I'm ready for battle. And I say, guess what? I did it last month and I did it the month before that. You say, I never do it. Here's two instances. I disprove your point and I refute you thusly. How do you feel now? Gotcha. And our godly counselor lovingly said that the language of never or the language of always, that's the language of fear. So it's, I fear that you never want to do this, or I fear that you always want to do this. So even good listening builds and bad listening blames and shames. My nickname growing up was Sawyer the Lawyer, because I'm, I'm always ready, I'm ready for a scrap. And so when I'm listening, am I listening to actually hear through the hurt to what my spouse is saying? Or am I listening for a, a point? Am I listening for a loophole or a foothold where I can go for the takedown again? Or I'm actually trying to hear her out. And sometimes you might have to help your spouse make their case against you. Are you trying to win or are you trying to grow? Because you can, you can hash out and beat down your spouse in an argument verbally. And perhaps you will never learn. Perhaps you will never grow. So this affects our posture. When we see marriage as a revelatory example of God's Trinity and as an ethical training ground for how he wants to grow us, this will affect how I speak. This will affect how I listen. And part of us living in community is learning from one another, watching one another, reading, studying from one another on what this looks like, the nitty gritties day in, day out. So we don't have time to dive into the full ethical training ground of marriage. That's something that takes a lifetime together. But so far we've seen marriage as trinity, marriage as ethics. It shows us who we are and how we are to live. It's revelatory and formative. And the final part that we see is that marriage also gives us a hint of who we will become, of our final destiny. Marriage points to our future. This is our final point. We see marriage as eschatology. And eschatology is just... Uh, theological term for end times, when God returns to finish his redeeming work of redeeming all things back to himself. We've seen that marriage is Trinitarian and it's ethical, and both are in service of its greatest goal of this final point, knowing God and making him known fully and perfectly. Marriage is a foretaste, it's an appetizer, the hors d'oeuvres of what will one day be our ultimate and eternal joy being with God in intimate relationship forever. And if you look at the language about Christ returning, you see a lot of this in Revelation, a lot of eschatological language, it's marriage language. This is described as being the wedding feast of the Lamb, a great wedding reception. Consider Revelation 19, six to eight. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Isaiah 62, 65 says this, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice 
over you. That the wedding day, sometimes couples take that, that first look, that picture when the bride sees the groom adorned in splendor and, and the joy, the overwhelming emotion that he feels is what God feels when he looks at us, when we are presented in splendor to him, not by what we've done, but by what his son has accomplished for us. And we will be presented to him as a bride is presented to her husband. And the delight and rejoice that he feels is what a husband feels when he is presented with his bride on the wedding day. And on this day, when God returns for us, every tear will be wiped away and all sin and suffering will be obliterated. Death will die. Evil will be destroyed for all eternity. And the best that we can do to describe this is to use figurative and hyperbolic language. It will be like the greatest wedding celebration ever, the most joyous reception that goes on for all eternity. It will be the best surprise party, the best homecoming or wedding banquet that we've ever experienced, and then some. Marriage is the promise that there will be a day when all of our failures and pain will be wiped away and we will be presented to God as pure and blameless. We will be full, flaming, holy beauty that moves in to serve and love the King of Kings. Christ will return for his bride of the church where she will go and live with him forever. And in the meanwhile, I get to love my wife. I get to hold her hand. I get to feel her pulse. I get to walk with her, discover her heart, feel alive together and brave as I provide and cultivate and care for her body and soul. I get to do so with the promise that no matter how I do today, how poorly I do, how much I mess up, there will be a tomorrow. And that tomorrow will one day show, uh, that tomorrow is going to shine so brightly and full that all, of I've, all that I've suffered today, all that I've messed up today will seem light and momentary. Marriage is a ground both of suffering and redemption. Salvation must be true in marriage or it is not true at all. Marriage is the place where hope grows, where expectation and longing grows. It's a window into the coming kingdom of God. It's the place in the relationship which shouts, he is glorious and he is good. In Ephesians 5, it's interesting that Paul refers to marriage as the mysteries, as this grand mystery we see in marriage itself. And this mystery is how God can be united with man. And we see this mystery explained and perfected in the person of Jesus. How can an eternal God be with man who is so distant, so fickle, so feeble? If we had time, we would look at Hosea and Gomer. And he says, go after your wife, Hosea, who's once again left you to love other things, just as God goes after his church, how God goes after his people, who sent his son Jesus to die in pursuing us so that we could be presented to him as his church, as his bride in this way. God makes us beautiful like a bride on her wedding day. So let's wrap this up. This has been very high level, very theological. Today we've been trying to answer these two questions. What is the purpose of marriage and how do I achieve it? And we've seen that marriage is Trinitarian, one of the goals, to be revelatory, to grow relationship. And it's also ethical to grow character. And finally, it's eschatological. 
helping to make God known in the world, showing what is to come, a foretaste of God's grand redemption of all things. It shows us who we are, how we ought to be, and who we will become. And this helps to shape our approach and our expectation of marriage. So you watching today, is there a place where you need to be recalibrated in your marriage? Are you a couple degrees off? Or perhaps, you know, you're, you're facing the right way, but you're trying to get there on your own strength and you're exhausted, you're disappointed, you're growing jaded and bitter in this way. And you need to be reminded that it is God who does this redeeming work and it's the peace that we have with him which overflows into our marriage and our other relationships in this way. Now, what if you're not married today? You think, why should I really care about this? It's kind of like asking, you know, why should I care about geometry if I'm not a triangle? Perhaps you're moving towards marriage, and this can help shape your approach also as you look for your spouse. But also, this can help you as we're helping us as a community of believers today, walking alongside those who are married as well. This can help us in our discipleship of one another. I'm not married to most of you. I'm not married to almost all of you. There's one person I'm married to, everyone else, I'm not, okay? Yet, I care about your marriages. I am not a parent to any kids, yet I care about your parenting and I care about your families because this is one of the places where God loves to show his character and grow us. So a healthy, robust, godly, bold, beautiful vision of marriage is one of the places where God loves to build his church, where God loves to build culture and where God loves to build ourselves. And a healthy view of this is important regardless of if we are married or not as we walk alongside one another seeking to make God known today. Where do you need to be realigned with God's vision for marriage today? Where do you need to be empowered by his spirit? Can you imagine what our church would be like if people look at our marriages and say, I wanna know the God that empowers marriages like this. I wanna know the God that shines through these marriages. Do people see God in my marriage? Do people wanna know Jesus because of the marriages at Bayview Glen? And I hope this has stirred up a, a godly vision in us and a hunger for this to dive deeper into it. It's great that we actually have a marriage course coming up at our church. So if you want to learn more about what marriage is and you and your spouse, how do you walk through this together? What are practical tools for this ethical training ground? I would invite you to go to our website and sign up for this as we work together to show God through our marriages here. Now let's continue in worship.